Well, if you would, please turn again in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. We'll be dealing with the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus today in verses 47 to 56. But I want to begin with a question. What do we need? What do we need in our world more than anything else? What is the biggest problem we're up against? We're up against a few. Which is the biggest? Is it economic? Political? Is it our physical health, as we've just prayed for? Or is it something else? Maybe one of the most important questions you'll ever consider and give an answer to. The way we answer that question will go a long way in determining what we think of Jesus as he is presented to us in the Gospel of Matthew. Don Carson put the question this way, or framed this issue this way. He said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was for entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an actor. If it was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin our alienation from Him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so He sent us a Savior. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, begins with an announcement that Jesus is the Son of David, the Son of of Abraham. At the end of that section on the genealogy, he tells us that he is not only the son of David, he is the Christ. In other words, Matthew announces right out of the gate that here is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Everything that we read in the following pages of Matthew is under that heading that here he is. In only 21 verses into the chapter, we are told what it is that he came to save us from. The angel says to Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But did Jesus' own disciples know this? As the Gospel of Matthew unfolds, we see Jesus, by way of review, doing amazing miracles and astounding people 
with his teaching. All of which points to the fact that he is the Christ, the Savior. But none of his disciples, after years of following him, seemed to get that his primary objective at his first coming was to save them from their sins. It's very clear in our passage today and passages previous as well that they didn't understand that he would have to go to a cross in order to accomplish that. But here's the thing, friends. Until we are clear on the problem we're going to have a hard time seeing what the solution to our problem is. And it's obvious in our passage that even Jesus' closest disciples don't see that the cross is the solution to the biggest problem facing us. But it is God's way of salvation. As we walk through this passage, we'll see that Jesus' disciples don't understand God's way of salvation. Could it be that others even today in the church, remember this is Jesus' closest band of followers, insiders, could it be that there are yet some of us in the church that still don't quite get God's way of salvation. It is my hope, it is my prayer that when we're finished looking at this passage today that all here would and they would embrace it by faith. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 26 verses 47 to 56. As Jordan Green indicated earlier, they are still in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we read this. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? 
Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. What is God's way of salvation? That's our question this morning. I'm not going to deal with all of the details of this passage, but I want to try to answer that question. What is God's way of salvation? And I want to highlight three things about God's way of salvation from this passage. Quite simply. First, God's way of salvation is not by taking up the sword but by taking up a cross. Did you notice as we read that this passage is full of swords? The word sword is used seven times in the Gospel of Matthew, six of them right here in our passage. Three in verse 52 alone begins by telling us that Jesus or Judas leads a crowd that have swords and clubs in their hand to arrest Jesus. As Jesus is arrested, one of his disciples, one who was with him, we're told, the Gospel of John tells us that it is Peter, he drew his sword to fight back. Then at the end of the passage, as Jesus addresses the crowds, presumably as he's even being led away, he says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? This word robber here, I feel, is important in this passage You can see, not in our text, but in other ones, uh, the ESV will even put a footnote that says you could translate that word robber as insurrectionist or a revolutionary. Jesus is clear throughout this passage that he is no revolutionary who has come to overthrow Rome. He's not going to bring salvation to his people through wielding the sword because that's not the main thing that they need right now. They may think that it's the main thing that they need, but it is not the main thing that they need right now. This misunderstanding about Jesus' identity could be the reason for Judas' betrayal of Jesus. Judas has been with Jesus for three years now, but clearly, as we saw last week, he is scandalized by Jesus, disappointed with him. He's not acting the way that messiahs are supposed to act. Could it be that Judas is a zealot, a Jewish nationalist? That's 
what a zealot was. A Jewish nationalist who's looking for a Messiah who will overthrow Rome and restore power to the nation of Israel. Some scholars have come to the conclusion that he was. One piece of evidence would be in chapter 10 where we hear of Judas for the first time in Matthew's list of the 12 disciples. The 12 disciples are listed in pairs, and many of these pairs fit together. Peter and Andrew, James and John. The last of those pairs is Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. Some say that the word Iscariot is the Latin word for zealot. We don't know for certain, but maybe Judas is a zealot looking for someone to save him and his country from political oppression. If that's what he thinks the main problem is, it's no surprise that he's a little disappointed in Jesus. It's no surprise that he doesn't see the cross as the way Jesus is going to bring salvation if he doesn't rightly discern what the problem that he needs saved from is. It's no wonder he's disappointed in Jesus because Jesus didn't come to take up his sword against Rome. Judas, I think you feel this as we read this passage. He illustrates for us how difficult it is to come to understand the main thing Jesus came to save us from. Remember, he's with him for three years, he's heard every sermon. Some of them multiple times. He's seen every miracle. Some of them, again, performed multiple times. Two times he helped distribute the loaves that had been multiplied. This is a man who saw with his own eyes and experienced in his own life who Jesus was and what he was about. And yet, he still didn't get it. My thoughts have been toward your adult children this week who aren't following Jesus. Do you know I pray for them? I have a list of the ones I know of. And I bring them before the throne of God on a regular basis. But I wonder if at times you're tempted to blame yourself. Where did we go wrong? Did we fail in our teaching? Did we fail in our example? Did we not give them the right environment? I can't speak for you. But before you beat yourself up too much, remember that Judas had the best teacher. He had the best example. He had the most compelling 
evidence, he was placed in the most ideal environment, and yet he still didn't get it. I mean, he believed to some level. I don't think he's faking it. And he followed for some time, and yet in the end, he didn't continue in the faith. But it's not just Judas that's struggling to get it. Even the 11 who are here, who do have saving faith, who will end up eventually following Jesus to the point of death, at this point, they still don't get it. When Jesus was arrested, Peter drew the sword and he cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. He's seeking salvation through the sword. But Jesus says to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take up the sword, they will die by the sword. The sword is not the way to save your life. The sword that brings death will only bring death. The only way to life, is the paradox of the gospel, is through death. Through the death of Jesus on the cross. And through our own willingness to take up our cross and follow him. The only other time, interestingly, that the word sword is used in Matthew of the seven... The only other time is in chapter 10, verse 34, where Jesus says, which may sound like a contradiction, that he came to bring the sword. But he didn't mean in that verse that he came to wield the sword to defeat his enemies right there in front of him. What he meant was when it comes to following Jesus, to being a disciple, You have to choose your allegiance. And sometimes that will mean even the breaking up of families, of son and father, of daughter and mother. Then he goes on in that same passage to say that whoever would come up after me or whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you see the point? You don't live by taking up the sword. Your life comes from Jesus taking up the cross, but then you also living a life of taking up the cross. A political or a military revolutionary isn't the Savior that we need. Friends, let me just put it to you who rightfully mourn what you see going on in our world. Our country's certain ruin isn't our biggest problem. The Savior we need is a Savior who takes up a cross for us 
and those who belong to him, they won't be taking up the sword either. They too will be taking up the cross and following him. But even though Jesus didn't come wielding the sword of worldly power, that doesn't mean that the cross was void of God's power. And that leads me to my second point. God's way of salvation, the way of the cross, is not by accident, but by God's sovereign power. Right after Jesus tells Peter to put his sword back in its sheath, notice what he says in verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? There's a contrast here. Put your sword back in its place. And yet He's saying, do you not think that I have all the power I need at my disposal? Far greater power than His 12 disciples wielding Two swords. He has command over 12 legions of angels. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. A legion of Roman soldiers was 6,000 soldiers. So Jesus is saying, look, I don't need 12 disciples defending me. I've got 12 legions of angels at my hand, 72,000 angels at my command. Now, when you think of angels, can I ask you to get that image out of your mind of a cute, chubby cherub? Let me put a different image in your mind. Think of the angel that led Israel out of Egypt. Think of the angel that blotted out the Amorites after the exodus. Or the angel in 2 Kings 19 that struck down 185,000 Assyrians. One angel. Think of the angel who protected Daniel in the lion's den. Or Think of the angel in Revelation 20 who will one day seize Satan before the millennium, bind him for a thousand years, throw him into the pit so that he might no longer deceive the nations. Those are examples in Scripture of what one angel could do. What could 72,000 do against a paltry mob? of soldiers sent to seize Jesus. There's plenty of ammo available at Jesus' disposal. God has power that is more than enough. But this is what you need to know. He's choosing not to use it because that's not His way of salvation at Jesus' first coming. Believe me, When he returns, the sword will be drawn. But at his first coming, he didn't wield the sword. I've said it before, I'll say it again. 
Jesus is not a victim. He is a volunteer. We are meant to see that on every page of the passion narrative. He goes to the cross in weakness, but it's not because he's weak. The cross of Christ is not a tragedy. It is a triumph of God's way of salvation. What's happening to Jesus, if I can put it another way, is it's not an accident. It's according to God's sovereign power. And that leads me to a related point, my final point. God's way of salvation, the way of the cross, is not an afterthought, but according to God's plan predicted in the Scriptures. So not an accident. It's by God's sovereign power. Not an afterthought, but according to God's plan. Jesus finishes his remarks to his disciples by saying, verse 54, But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? Then he turns to the crowds and says something similar. All of this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Clearly important, otherwise Jesus wouldn't repeat it in our passage. But what Scriptures does he have in mind? I don't know that there's a specific Scripture that he has in mind. I tend to believe that he may have the entirety of the Scriptures in mind. Because I believe that the entirety of the Old Testament points to the death and the resurrection of Jesus as God's way of salvation. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus says to the two brothers on the road, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? Let me say that again. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all of the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. So the overall trajectory of Scripture points to the death and the resurrection of Christ as necessary for salvation. And yet, there are a couple of specific passages that seem relevant to our passage in Matthew 26. In the Psalms, I try to read through the Psalms um, pretty regularly in my Bible reading. And David is probably the most dominant thing that's happening in the Psalms is lament. David and others, like Asaph, as we read today, are lamenting opposition from their enemies. But that grief is intensified when the betrayal comes from those who are close to the king. In Psalm 41, David says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread with me, has lifted up his heel against me. Or in Psalm 55, he says, For it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an 
an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, a companion, a familiar friend. It's no surprise then that his Jesus faces Judas, identifying as the son of David, says, friend, do what you have come to do. The clearest fulfillment of Scripture, however, comes from Isaiah 53, and it speaks not only of the plan of the cross, but the significance of the cross. Throughout Matthew, there's this repeated language beginning in uh, our, our chapter, chapter 26, where Jesus predicts that he will be delivered up to be crucified. When Jesus went to sell Jesus out, he says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Jesus predicts at the supper that one of you will betray me. It's the same verb. It's you'll deliver me up. In our passage, Judas is called the betrayer, the one who delivers Jesus up. The same verb is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of Isaiah 53, 6, familiar verse, says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has delivered on him the iniquity of us all. As Jesus is delivered over to his captors by Judas, God is at work in delivering him over to them, more specifically, turning our sins over onto his back so that he can bear them for us. Isaiah 53, 12, we read, He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. Who are the transgressors? They're clearly the robbers, the criminals. The crowds came out to Jesus as a robber, but he wasn't. Barabbas is later a robber released instead of Jesus. When Jesus is crucified, he's crucified with two robbers, on either side of him. He was numbered with the transgressors. Why? To bear the sins of many. Everybody in the garden is guilty except for one. The one who's being arrested. The only sinless man who ever lived, who didn't deserve to die, and yet he died in our place. He died for Adam's sinful race. He took the blame. He bore the wrath so that we might stand forgiven at the cross. Friends, the cross was not an afterthought. It was according to 
to God's plan predicted in the scriptures. It wasn't an accident. It was all taking place under God's sovereign power. The way of salvation, God's way of salvation, it's not by the sword. It's by taking up the cross. This was necessary. There was no other way. Why? Because our greatest problem is our sin. And the cross is the solution to this greatest problem. But in order to see this is God's solution, we first have to see our greatest problem. We need to see what we need saved from, that we are sinners in need of salvation, and that Jesus is the Savior that we need, and that he had to die on a cross in order to save us. Let me bring this home. Do you see it? Do you see it? And before you too quickly answer the question, let me remind you of the ones who didn't see it. The twelve. Do you see it? And I'm not asking you if you know that it's true in your head. If you could get the answer right on a test. I'm not asking you if you have orthodox evangelical theology and you know the answer to the question, is Jesus died for my sins? I'm asking if you see at a heart level that that's what you need. Salvation from your sins. And if you do, I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus is the Savior that you need. And his cross is the way of providing that salvation. Receiving him is as simple as ABC. Now that not only applies to those who are maybe visitors here and are aware that you are not a believer in Jesus, but maybe to others of you who have assumed. The question before us all is, have you admitted that you are a sinner? in need of salvation? Have you believed that Jesus died to save you from your sin? And have you then committed to follow him, to give him your life, to pick up your cross and come after him, to die to your own will, to seek to embrace the will of God, to say, not my will, but yours be done. Following him also involves, for those who do believe, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. Our passage this morning teaches us that we are not to take up the sword, to take up the cross. And yet, there's a sense in which we do need to take up the sword. But we take up a different sword. We take the sword of the Spirit, which is word of God. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. That's not the main battle that's going on in this world. The main battle that is going on in this world is against the spiritual forces of evil. Our battle is against the devil who has darkened the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But when we wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, we bring light into darkness. We pray that the Spirit would open people's eyes that have been darkened so that they may see. We live in a world that the greatest problem in our world is that people are alienated from God. They are in broken relationship with God. But when we wield the sword of the Spirit, we come, ironically, as ambassadors of peace. We have the ministry of reconciliation. Our desire is to see God reconciling the world to Himself, not counting men's sins against them. The cross, in brief, is the main thing we need. It's the main thing you need. It's the main thing I need. But it's also the main thing this country needs. It's also the main thing that the world needs. And we need to concern ourselves with this greatest need. We need to make the main thing the main thing in our lives. As Jesus' disciples, we need to give the world what they need. And what they need is Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. Father, help us in our lives that are full of many needs, very legitimate needs, in a world with many needs, to see our main need, to see the main need of the world, and then give us eyes to see Jesus as the one who comes to save us from our greatest problem, our greatest need. We ask in his name. Amen.